when I say if we thought more like poker players, we'd, we'd kind of maybe be better off in certain ways. It's because poker players really take into account the uncertainty. They acknowledge it. They embrace it. They don't hide from it. They are very accepting of it. And they make their decisions accordingly. And I think that that's incredibly helpful. I think that most people kind of naturally hide from uncertainty. I think that most people are afraid of uncertainty. Most people uh, want to believe that they have much more control over the ways that their turn, lives turn out than they actually do. Hello, everyone. Welcome to 15 Minutes, a podcast about fame and whatever else my guest and I feel like talking about. Episode 58. I'm Jamie Berger. My guest this week uh, was the guest on Episode 5, Annie Duke. And if you'd like to hear Annie talk more specifically and at great length uh, about fame... Go listen to episode five, because we talk about a lot of other stuff this time. And she has just come out with a new book. Uh, let me read you the exact bio that I read of Annie in 2016, and then I'll tell you more. Annie Duke is a poker legend, winner of a WSOP bracelet, the WSOP Tournament of Champions, and of the NBC National Heads Up Poker Championship in 2010, among many other accolades. She was also runner-up to Joan Rivers on season two of Celebrity Apprentice. Among other charitable endeavors, Annie is co-founder, along with Don Cheadle and Norman Epstein, of Anti-Up for Africa. She's our first guest, or she was back then, who had ever been over the wall of fame and climbed back. We refer to the Wall of Fame in episode one. Annie is now retired from both poker and TV and is now a professional speaker, decision strategist, and one of the founders and directors of How I Decide, a nonprofit dedicated to helping youth become skilled decision makers, both in school and out. Last, and as Annie would say, most important, she is the proud mother of four. Uh, early on in our conversation this time, this is me, Jamie, back in the present, not reading the old text, Annie refers to the top secret work she did for many years that really led to this book, and that is the uh, professional speaking and decision strategist work she would do for, for corporations and for, for organizations and, and meetings and retreats uh, for many years. It wasn't actually top secret. It just wasn't public. Uh her new book is a Wall Street Journal bestseller, as you'll learn in a few minutes. It's called Thinking in Bets, and I'm not going to say too much about it because I asked Annie to give us an introduction to it um, fairly early on, uh, but let me just say that it, it focuses on the idea that life is less a game of chess than a game of poker, and if you approach it that way, you will make better decisions. About 20 minutes in, she and I, um, something that was a little lost in the edit here, 
mention having yes and conversations with people. And that's a reference to, many of you know, the um, improvisation technique of when someone walks on stage and says, I'm sitting in a truck full of melting ice cream. The rule, and there are rules of improvisation, even though it seems maybe contradictory, but there are, there's, there are a lot of rules. But one of them is that you, you go with what that person offers you. You yes and them. You, 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 you try to go from that, join them on the truck full of ice cream and try to solve the problem as opposed to what sometimes nervous beginners do on stage is say something like, no, that's dumb. <laughs> and then the, the whatever is being improvised just kind of dies on the vine. So that's what we mean by yes and. Um, Annie and I spoke in March on Skype with the camera on, and you'll understand why I'm telling you that at the very beginning, because we're talking about what I'm seeing behind her, which is one of our late season snowstorms that hit her outside Philly much more than hit it hit us up in the wilds of Western Massachusetts. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Annie Duke. <laughs> there you are. I have to turn on my camera. Hi, Annie. Hi. Oh, my goodness. I might end up turning this off if I'm too distracted. I, I don't like seeing me. <gasps> Look at your outfit. <laughs> I mean, you've got the whole thing with the yes, mic and everything. It looks like a, a studio almost. That's crazy. It's my study and studio. Yeah. Very semi-professional. It's very good. How are you? Look at... Can you can you see? Oh my God! We have missed the last two storms. My dad got a foot in Albany, and Boston got a foot both times, and we were in this strip that got three inches. And so, did this just start this morning? Uh, well, it was snowing a tiny bit last night, which was bad because I had a Franklin Institute thing. So the thing was like triple sold out, like, you know, cause you get tickets and then they have a waiting list and stuff. So it was triple sold out, but the auditorium was like half full because of the snow. Why don't you start by telling, tell me about what, what was that event? Oh, um, so I was do, just doing a talk and then selling books afterwards. So it was like, it was weather and I kept, I kept, uh, you know, writing them during the day saying, is it still on? Are we still going to do it? You know, and it's one of those things. It's like, you don't really know. Cause the snow isn't, you know, start, it's really bad today. And, um, it wasn't, you know, it's like very iffy yesterday. So they decided to go with it, but I did, I mean, I did sell a lot of books, but that does make me a little regretful. Cause I'm like, Oh, if the auditorium had been full, I would, really would have, but um, it was no, but it was fun. It was nice. And I had done something like that at museum of mathematics on Friday. Before I, I actually, I was going to ask you to, to start by because I've, I've heard a lot of, I've listened to you talking to other people lately. And, and I hear a lot of people uh, start by telling you what your book is about. And I was going to ask uh, you to do that instead. But before, first, I want to hear the other day you tweeted the word bestseller. Yeah. Well, tell me about it. What are what What is it for? What list? And. Oh, for the Wall Street Journal business books. 
Um, you know, so it's exciting. It was on for one week. You know, who knows if we'll get back on again. But um, but still, I mean, that, obviously that was really exciting. It's my first book for general audiences. Um, you know, I've been doing this um, kind of top secret work uh, since 2002. I mean, top secret in the sense that I... Uh, Obviously, I was known by the type of people who would hire me and by the speakers bureaus and things like that. But it wasn't something that people in general who knew who I was knew that I did. And the funny thing was that for a long time, that that was actually a sort of a bigger part of my life um, than even the poker was. It's just that it's not it doesn't sit as firmly in the public square. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, so like. I, I mean, I remember when I was selling the book um, that, you know, it's this interesting thing because, like, I'm obviously known as a poker player and I do have this speaking, you know, that I've been doing in the same zone as the book that just came out, Thinking in Bets. But, um, you know, a little bit more obviously of an unknown entity um, in this kind of general audience space. I mean, certainly as compared to a lot of the academics who write, who are like, well, you're an academic, you're an expert in that way, or a lot of the business people um, who write in that space and whatnot. So uh, I feel like the publisher was taking a chance on the book. So it's kind of exciting. Yeah. So, you know, so it made made the bestseller list. So I I get to have this sort of evergreen national bestseller now. Bestselling author. Yes. Before we go any further, I want to read you a quote and then let you give a little intro to people who don't know what we're talking about to this point. Okay, Uh uh-oh. No, no. On page 43, you wrote something that I thought was a pretty good summary of the the goals of the book anyway. And that is, the promise of this book is that if we follow the example of poker players by making explicit that our decisions are bets, we can make better decisions and anticipate and take protective measures – when irrationality is likely to keep us from acting in our best interests. Take it. So, okay. So I think the idea is that um, there's a lot of uncertainty in the world, uh, both in trying to predict the future, which naturally has a lot of luck involved. Uh, Even if you make a perfect decision, even if you were able to do that somehow, I'm not sure how you would, but even if you were able to make a perfect decision, um, it doesn't always turn out right. So, you know, when you maximize the chances that you have a good outcome, all you're doing is maximizing the chances that you have a good outcome. You can't guarantee it. So, um, you know, certainly in in the sense of predictions, there's lots and lots of uncertainty. And then also, and I think this is a place where we're less likely to acknowledge it, there's a lot of uncertainty around our beliefs. Um, You know, there's some objective truth that exists out in the world, and we're all just trying to model it. And if it were easy to get to the objective truth, people wouldn't disagree with each other so much. Uh, And so vehemently, number one, uh, number two, our ideas about things wouldn't change so often, right? I mean, it, it's not really that long ago that we thought that the sun revolved around the earth as opposed to the other way around. That, that would be a very big example of that. But I think that we all can imagine if we give ourselves enough time and space, uh, things that we used to believe that we were very, very certain of 
uh, that it turns out were kind of silly to believe. I, I think that when anybody who's say, you know, 40 or above thinks about themselves at 20, uh, there, you have some embarrassing things that you thought at 20 and you were incredibly sure of those things. So there's all this uncertainty, which is coming from these two places. One place is luck. Um, even, even if they, if you, even if you could behave in some sort of perfect fashion, you don't have control over the way that things turn out in some sense because of luck. And then the other thing is from hidden information, just stuff that we don't know that's kind of missing from our model of what the objective truth is. So when I say if we thought more like poker players, we'd, we'd kind of maybe be better off in certain ways. It's because poker players really take into account the uncertainty. They acknowledge it. They embrace it. They don't hide from it. They are very accepting of it. And they make their decisions accordingly. And I think that that's incredibly helpful. I think that most people kind of naturally hide from uncertainty. I think that most people are afraid of uncertainty. Most people uh, want to believe that they have much more control over the ways that their turn lives turn out than they actually do. I mean, they are a higher authority has, has control over the way their lives turn out. Right. Exactly. Um, and I think that the other thing is, is that, uh, I think that we're not that great at really facing down the fact that every decision that we make involves some risk. Um, and that risk really generates from, you have a limited set of resources. You can only choose one thing, which means you're forgoing all other choices. Uh, and the future is uncertain. You, you, you can't guarantee how the future um, turns out. So there's a lot of risk in any decision you make, even ordering something on a menu, um, you know, or going through a traffic light or, or things that are pretty simple that we do every single day for the bigger <laughs> ones, obviously, you can yeah. imagine. Yeah. I, I'm laughing because of a conversation you had with a, with a young man from, oh, some website, the Manliness podcast. I loved, I loved that conversation. His name was Brett, I think. And, um, that was a great podcast and that guy was great. I, I so completely loved that. And you both were kind of hedging about whether you ever run red lights. And that's why I was laughing. No, I did not. Hedge. <laughs> I said, I do. I said, I've done it many times. He but, was, he yes. was, yes. I did not hedge. She, he was, hedging. I come right out in a minute. I, I've run red lights, like some mostly on accident, I will say mostly on accident, but, uh, but I have occasionally, not so much as a, when I'm older, but when I'm younger, you know, and it's like two in the morning and you're like, this light's taking forever and there are no cops around and I don't see anyone coming in the other direction. So you just say, screw it. And you go through, that's actually not a decision I make any anymore, but I certainly have made that decision in the past. I, I was just remembering yeah. that you asked him, do you ever run, have you ever run a red light? And he paused, like, this is a trick question. And he wasn't sure how to answer. But you notice once I freely admitted that I had, he, he, he came clean a little bit more. Look, we've all, come on, we've all run red lights because first of all, I, I can't, I don't know if there's anyone who hasn't pushed a yellow. Oh yeah. Right. And once you push a yellow, you're like guaranteed that you've run red. Yes. There are those people, but we hate them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, because what happens is you're behind them. And, you're, and Why like, didn't you go? <laughs> <laughs> right. You could have made it. So, yeah. <laughs>
almost ever since we reconnected 15 years ago or so, you have taught me little bits of this bit by bit over the years when you've taught me how to play poker. And that only in the past year or two when I've had some, I've had to make much more aggressive decisions in a, a business relationship and in leaving one. And I had to, to, I had to make more bets than I am comfortable making. And overall, I'd say they paid off, but might not have, um, that I realized as I was reading the book, it's like, Oh, and he's been showing me how to do this. So it, it was fascinating reading it. Uh, well, I, I guess we should explain to people, right, that so yes. that we went to college together. We used to hang out on we the did library with steps my boom a lot. Box. Yes, and then we, you know, as would very often happen prior to the days of Facebook, and uh, you know, you sort of took your phone number with you through your whole life and texting and whatnot. We kind of lost track of each other. Mm-hmm. for a little while and then um reconnected when you wanted to uh actually uh, kind of before poker was all over television yeah i was following you because i was a fan yeah you know when it was just on espn late at night you know and uh started to to follow you and howard yeah so i think i think we lost track of each other for like 15 years and then right around i'm gonna say 2002 or so um there was Jamie Berger in my life again, which was so great. You know, I think that um, uh, people don't, you know, certainly kids, my, I have kids who are all, you know, sort of in this high school, college age kind of, you know, zone. And I don't think they really appreciate, like, it's not that it wasn't the same back then in terms of keeping in touch with people, you know, I, oh my God, yeah. you know, you had a landline, like you moved and you got a new number. You couldn't just text somebody. You couldn't look them up on Facebook and say, hey, I wonder what that person is doing or whatever. So um, I, I consider myself very lucky that that we happen to get back in touch with each other because now, obviously, we see each other all the time. And, and even if we all, in a fury, left Facebook this week, you and I would still be in touch. Well, yes, we would because now we have cell phones and our numbers follow us around, so we can't lose touch. Also, I would hunt you down anyway. Good. Likewise, I have been, the last few days have surprised me in how uh, this is, today is March 21st, a couple days ago, Cambridge Analytica story came down. Yeah. For those of you who hear this in the future, I don't know why anybody's shocked. I I, I have given up to an extent on my privacy in, in deciding to stay on social media. And so I don't understand why suddenly... A lot of friends are writing, should we get off Facebook? Nobody has written, has posted, I'm getting off. Everybody's right. like, what should we do? But we all know that this is the way we've connected with friends from grade school, high school, college, and that we have this community now that would be very hard to transfer over to another, you know, you'd have to get everyone to agree to join another network that's the one network. And then, then that network would have the same risks built in of, I think always with any decision, you're working through identifying what your values and goals are, and those are different for different people. So I think the one thing that we really need to be careful of is that if you decide that for you, um, the trade-off in terms of privacy 
you know, versus the ability to connect with other people is not a good trade off for you and you decide to get off Facebook. I think it's really important. And, and I think that we have a very strong tendency to do this is to not impose those values on somebody else or judge them for making a different decision. Because in the end, you know, all you can do is, is give somebody a good structure uh, within which good decision making can occur. But people's values are different and people's goals are different. And I think that um, our values and our goals become such a part of our identity that when somebody chooses something different, we view that as a threat to our identity. It's as if they're, they're sort of attacking our identity, which of course isn't the case. It's just that that's the way we sort of feel about it. And so when they make a different choice, we will often have a, an emotional response to that. You know, when, you, when you're thinking about the world through this lens, instead of, I want to be right, but I want to be accurate, meaning there's some objective truth out there and I want to kind of move toward it. What, what goes along with that is that you, you don't have your own beliefs logged as kind of right or wrong. You, you have them logged as in progress. So you're, again, it goes back to that, uh, why are you happier if you acknowledge uncertainty? Well, if I acknowledge uncertainty, then I have to wrap my own uncertainty about my own beliefs and predictions into the way that I think about those things. So once I've done that, when someone offers me information uh, that's new, that maybe doesn't agree so much with what I already believe, I'm, I'm going to be less likely to uh, be defensive. Uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be less likely to be like, well, I have to discredit that information or the thing that I believe is wrong because the thing that I believe is in progress and, and somewhere along the way, you know, somewhere along the continuum between zero and a hundred percent. And what I'm trying to do is move it toward a place where I'm more certain about it. Uh, but I'm certainly not there because, you know, we used to think that the sun revolves around the earth. And so I have to, I have to keep that in mind. You know, that could become prevalent any time now, though. <laughs> <laughs> I hear it's the flat earth thing is coming back. So you never know. It's totally coming back. You can find lots of data to back, back up your belief that the earth is flat. You know, one of the, one of the issues with this kind of stuff is that it, whatever thing I want to argue, I, trust me, I can go find data for it. If I want to argue that gun control lowers crime, I can go find data that supports that position. If I want to argue that gun control increases crime, I can also go and find data that will support that position. So, uh, you know, the, I think the important thing is go try to understand both sides of the argument. Look at the studies that are supporting both sides. Talk to experts who believe different things, some on one extreme, some on the other, some who say it's kind of unclear or in between. Listen to all of them. Talk to other smart people who uh, will under who maybe can check your own biases and see where maybe you're trying to reason toward a conclusion as opposed to toward the truth. Um, and then try to figure out on balance where you land. And 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 I want to make it clear that doesn't mean that you're fifty fifty on everything, right? I mean that would be an insane way to live. I, my confidence that the Earth is round. Uh, approaches a hundred percent. The only reason why I'm not at a hundred percent is because like I, I haven't, I can't fully determine that I'm not living in the matrix or, 
you know, I mean, you know, we could discover some crazy thing, but I'm, I'm, I'm close to a hundred percent on it. And there, there are things where I'm 90, 10, there are things where I'm 80, 20, you know? Uh, so when you go and you sort of look at the weight of the evidence on whatever it is on, on gun control, you're, I'm not saying that you should walk around thinking, oh, I'm 50, 50 and everything. Of course you shouldn't. And it's, it's hard to function in a world where you're trying to, getting back to trying to have conversations with everyone, people will approach you who have lots of data and information, but they're still not, you know, mm -hmm. if someone approaches me and says that knives kill more people than AR-15s, it's hard to go yes and and have a conversation from that point. Well, let me ask you a question. I mean, is your is your goal there to really have a conversation with them? Or is your goal there to, I mean, it's about what your goal is, right? Like you could decide for yourself that somebody who holds that opinion, any opinion that you disagree with in that way, that you really think that you might, you might determine is not rooted in reality. is probably not going to be very open-minded to having a discussion. You could decide that they, they may feel the same way about you, by the way. And that's, I think, important for you to realize. But I, I think that if your goal is, I want to have a real conversation with this person and I really want to understand why they believe that. And I may not actually change their mind in any way, but I will have a better understanding of why people believe those things. And that is important for me. Then just say, yes, yeah, that's interesting. I'd love to hear what your data for that is. Can you tell me where it comes from? And I've seen this other data. And so I'd like to understand, you know, what do you think about this data? So I kind of think it depends on, on what are your goals in the conversation? If you think that because they believe something different than you, that, that, that is that you need them to believe the same thing as you do, you're going to have trouble. But if you don't need them to believe the same thing that you do and you're really just trying to understand what wh where they come from and also say you know I'm I'm probably never going to swing around totally to their position but I may actually moderate mine in some way because I may I may understand some things about these statistics that are flying around or I may see that what they're talking about is sort of number of incidents or not number of people killed or I'm just making this up by the way or they're looking at, you know, they're looking at a different measure or whatever it might be. Like you might actually learn something from, from sort of being open to what that conversation is, even if in the end you don't change their mind at all. Cause maybe that's not your goal. Maybe your goal is about your own journey and your own growth. And what, what I think, what I think is that when you are open to somebody else, because you're not your goal isn't to change their mind. Your goal is actually to, to just sort of incorporate as much information as you can into your own mind. And you're taking that stance that the people that you're in a conversation with are actually more likely to change their mind because you haven't put them on the defensive. I, 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 yes, I agree. It's just in, incredibly hard. It's really hard. It takes practice. And if I approach the conversation with the attitude that my goal is to change their mind, I won't really hear them. And I'm going to lose out because of that. I'm going to lose information. Now, I'm terrible at it. So is everybody else. I mean, but the goal is try to be a little bit better because every time that you have those little moments of success, that's 
more open-mindedness for you. That's more compassion for you. That's more information for you. And ultimately that will create better outcomes. You know, the, the thing that I say is like, look, if you can improve this stuff by just a few percentage points, think about it as compounding interest. It's completely unrealistic to think that you're going to be like, there's this great story, you know, one of these classic stories about in, in Buddhism, you know, about, uh, you know, a monk who gets jailed and he comes out of the, uh, he comes out of jail and I'm butchering this story. I just want to say that he comes out of jail and you know, the, the thing is that somebody says, you know, oh, you know, what was it like? And, you know, it's very clear that he's unhappy uh, with how, you know, how things were. And, and they think that it's because he's very angry at his captors. Uh, and it turns out that he's disappointed in himself because there were days when he failed to have compassion for the people who had jailed him. Now, you will never be that guy. I mean, maybe you will, but I, I, I put it at a low likelihood. I mean, I, I'm not going to be that. I'm not going to be that guy. But, you know, I, look, having that as a goal so that you can move toward that a little bit. Yeah. Um, you're going to be better off in your life. Like it's, it's not even do it from a completely selfish standpoint, right? It's not about changing those people's minds or somehow making more people see the light or whatever it is. It's about really practicing, uh, information gathering and open-mindedness and, and belief calibration. And maybe this thing that you believed so strongly that you were 98% on, maybe after having a conversation, you you're now 96%. Now, by the way, you still have a very strong belief about it. It's just you can kind of see the other side a little better. Let's talk about you a little bit. And, and how, how does this, you know, you, 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 here it is, your first mainstream book. It's a success. You know, you're, 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 you're on Smirconish. <laughs> uh, George Saunders uh, last year had a huge, huge year. And I talked to him at the very beginning of it, uh, fiction writer. And he said that every time I've had a success, he had nothing like ever before. He won the Booker last year. He's, he's, you know. mm -hmm. But he said every time I have a success and you go on a big tour and people give you applause and you get this, it always comes to a point where I have to or my wife has to kind of say, okay, <laughs> you know, that you become, that, that he says he, he, he believes it a little too much. Yeah. And he has, to, he has to wind down and come back to not being full of shit. You don't seem to have changed a whit, and your book isn't, you know, it's a more modest win than winning the Man Booker Prize to, to have a successful book. But how are you, how does it feel to have you, you, you did it? You made it, you made a mainstream book? Huh, that's an interesting question. It's a different kind of success. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, You're on a news network, not a poker network. <laughs> yeah, well, so first of all, I, I would say that probably I lean toward imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. Amen, so, sister. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I'm just waiting for everybody to figure it out. Mm -hmm. uh, I wish people could see your smile right now because you're clearly like, don't ask me that. <laughs> you know, I mean, we, we've, we've talked in the past that it's very hard to, for you personally to be famous. Um, and we, we've talked about my trajectory, which is a sort of accidental trajectory into fame. Mm -hmm. I mean, somewhat accidental in the sense that I, I chose a profession that at the time was not on television and wasn't anything that anybody would ever know you for. Uh, and then all of a sudden I was on television. Um, and then obviously, uh, and then I wasn't in 2012, I retired. And 
was doing all of this speaking and and thinking in in the in the space that this book is, which I'd been doing since two thousand two, but like on the side, and then I you know and 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 I retired in two thousand twelve, and then you know I wasn't on television anymore, and I wasn't you know and I was living a, a very private life, except I was I was going off and um you know doing these talks, and I'd I'd always had this um this book in mind. I just want to sneak in and say, not only did you leave poker, you were also in LA and you were, you know, producing things and you were trying to make television and you were making TV and you went from that to a completely more private and, and intellectual and academic. Right. I went back to academics, which is where I started. I, I, I moved back to the city where I did academics actually. But I, you know, I don't, I'd always, even before I, before I wrote, decide to play great poker, um, which was, you know, my big poker book, uh, I knew that I had two books that I wanted to write. One of them was a poker book that was informed by this kind of framework of decision-making. And one was a decision-making book that was informed by the framework of poker. So I I knew that I wanted to do both of those. And I decided to do the poker books first. I think, first of all, it was less friction for me because I felt like this is the area where people kind of knew that I had expertise. Uh, And, you know, and I was mainly a poker player. So I just, I kind of felt like, oh, I should do that first. And then when I, when I retired and started just doing, really just focusing on the speaking, uh, on the decision-making and critical thinking and, uh, and, you know, cognitive behavioral psychology as it might be informed, uh, by poker, um, this book was still, I was still like, oh, you know, I was really always kind of planning to do that book and, but I wasn't sure whether I was going to do it or not. And then, I don't know, eventually I decided that I really wanted to write it. And so I did, um, and it's terrifying. You know, it, it's one thing to get up in front of a group of people and give uh, somewhere between a half hour to an hour, hour's worth of remarks on this stuff. Um, and have people come up and say, ooh, that was nice. And, you know, they can't read it and pick it apart and find all the places where your arguments are totally flawed and they're not particularly, mo- you know, motivated to do that. Um and you're not, you know, and it's kind of, you know, that's, that's kind of, you know, that, that more just goes in the, wow, this is like real, a really fun thing to do. Uh, and it doesn't feel like you're, you're being exposed in the same way. Um, and when you put out a book now, oof, it's, you know, what I tell people is like, it's the, it's the greatest identity on earth to be someone writing a book because that's just. You know, people are like, ooh, you become the most interesting person when you say that to somebody because everybody thinks, ooh, I'd, I've never I'd never write a book or I'd, I'd like to write a book or, you know, it, it just seems like a thing that people are sort of impressed by, right? Like, oh, you're writing a book. Tell me what it is. And then you give them the two sentence pitch that you've practiced over and over again. And then in fact, was the pitch that sold the book. So, you know, it's probably a reasonable pitch. And that's the end of the conversation. And they're not really digging in and delving into the ideas or, or, or critiquing them very much. It's just this moment of like, I was, I was great at that cocktail party tonight. Um, but then you put the book out and it's a completely different thing, you know, and there's good reviews and bad reviews, right? There, you know, and those kinds of things. Yeah. Unlike almost anyone I've talked to for the show, I had so much to talk about that I didn't read the reviews. Were there any that particularly bristled? That really you're like, that, that, how did you take critical reviews? Yeah, poker books don't get that many reviews. No. Yeah. 
So the two really mainstream reviews came from the Wall Street Journal and I did read that one. Yeah, and then also Forbes. I didn't read that one. <laughs> yeah, there was it was like the Wall Street Journal one. So I've been lucky in that way. Um the you know, some of the Amazon reviews are, you know, this is useful, what useless, oh, whatever. You know? no, I mean, the negative Amazon reviews, I don't know. You, you don't know who you're dealing with. Yeah. So um, I, I think that it's not, uh, you know, it's not, it's not a Steven Pinker book. It hasn't been hugely widely reviewed. And it's not so much that I'm worried, like, uh, it's not. Not so much that I'm worried about the critical reviews that are out there. It's like I'm just it's like there's a lot of people reading the book now and it feels very exposed because each individual is going to have an opinion about it and think that it's useful or not. And your ideas are just kind of out there. So it sounds like there hasn't been anything too harsh. Scathing? Or, yeah, I, I can't imagine it really. Well, there's only really been two reviews. So, so far, so good. Let me tell you one quick story about uh reviewing a, a poker book and then give you one of two topics to because we, we've talked for a long time uh when positively fifth street came out i always confused the dylan song with the you know with, which street it is came out uh i was in san francisco and i was writing for the san francisco chronicle and i knew way ahead of time was coming out and i, I was just, i was writing little book reviews and I, I really pitched them that I, I should review this book. I'm, I'm, I'm a poker guy, and I think it's going to be good. And so they gave it to me, and they gave me a, the, the front of the book review, and it was very exciting. And I wrote this generally positive review. Right. Uh, just uh, about all the, the, the poker in it and how it was gripping and, and, and interesting and, and you know enlightening. And then I was like, but the whole tawdry crime stuff I could have done without. The, 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 like, the whole, like, binions, Yeah. The murder and the Binion stuff, just because it didn't interest me that much. And this is the San Francisco Chronicle. The next day, you know, Jim McManus writes me from Chicago. You don't know what you're we let me let me cut to the end and then come back. We ended up making up and 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 getting along. But he was furious. And he was scouring, obviously, he was online back then when we weren't online quite so much, scouring the, the internet. And all it really did was glorify me as a little book reviewer in San Francisco that the author was that involved in my book review. Um, but he really took it. He took it real hard. And it was a, such a positive review. So Seth Godin told me when the book came out, he was – very, very clear about this. I, I have only somewhat followed his advice. I want to make. I want to just say that I haven't been great. Give a little background on who Seth. Oh, Godin. Seth Godin is a. He he was one of the original people with Yahoo, I think, and then he's written lots and lots of books that are amazing on marketing. People should go look at his stuff. He's he's a great writer. He's super super smart. Really really great in the business space. Uh, really thinks about sort of how to make your like make yourself stand out uh he's either been in your book or your newsletter he's been uh, in a few places he's definitely he, he, he's he blurred the back of my book yes i have been in one of his books as a narrative uh he has been on i did a like web show for a little while he was a guest on that um he, you can find him talking on podcasts he's he's brilliant to listen to I think that he's not only 
great in terms of marketing or business advice, but like his philosophy of life, I think is really great. And he's also like super nice. So he said, don't read anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, don't read the comments. And he, I think that he said something very wise, uh, which was, you think that you're going to be happy when you read the good reviews, but you won't be because a lot of times the good reviews actually don't you read them and you think they didn't really understand my book. And then that makes you sad. So he said, you'll find something to be unhappy about even when they do a good review of your book, because you'll be like, wait, no, that's not what I meant. Or they read the book in a way that I didn't intend or whatever it might be. And obviously, you know, a billion fold when you read a bad review. So he just said like, don't read any of them. It's really good to try to be better at this stuff and for me to follow Seth Godin's advice and not actually read any of this stuff, but it's hard. It's really hard. And when you're already sort of feeling like, oh my gosh, I just exposed all my ideas. Like I just splatted my brain onto a bunch of pages and stuck it out into the world for, for people to see. Um, you know, it, it's hard not to then see, well, I've exposed myself. How are, how are people actually reacting to that exposure? Um, what Seth really tries to get you to, and I think that this was actually, now that I think about going way back to the beginning of the conversation when you were talking about your own podcast and what you're trying to do, is that he, he actually, I was listening to a podcast that he was on recently, and basically what he said is like, you can't please everybody. You're going to put out product because it's product that you like and ideas that you like and ideas that you think are useful. And some people will like it and some people won't. But 100% of the people out in the world aren't your audience. Oh, I tell, I tell young writers that all the time. And if you try to make it so that 100% of people out in the world are your audience, it is a sure way to fail. And if you're doing something that is interesting and that interests you and that you're passionate about, some people will hate it. And so I think that's really why he's saying, like, don't worry about the reviews because by definition, if you're doing something interesting – then there, there, there are people who will hate it because you're, it's not, it's not sort of vanilla what you're putting out there. And he's a big believer in write what you care about and write what you're passionate about and what you think is really interesting and useful. And then know your audience, like let your audience find you. I, it's funny. I, I, I've got to read about him writing because I, I, I spend so much time disillusioning teenagers by telling them that you can write the best novel ever written. And like, if 5% of the people in the world love it, you're you're doing better than any writer has ever done. That's right. (laughs) So my goal in life is to be more like Seth Godin and less like Annie Duke. Oh, don't be less like... (laughs) Well, you know what I mean. I mean, it's hard. It is hard for me. You know, who knows what's really going on inside his head, but he seems to be very comfortable with these are my ideas and I'm happy with my ideas. And what I care about is improving my ideas. The other, the other thing that he points out is that by definition, you know, a book has to go out at some point. It can't be living, breathing, changing Yes. for the history of time. At some point you publish it. And then, you know, a year later you're thinking, Oh, I wish I had said this, or I wish I had done this differently, or now I have this new idea. And so you have to be okay with the fact that you've put out this thing that is kind of frozen in time and that you realize later, oh, there might have been a better example or maybe this concept wasn't exactly 
right? And, you know, because obviously by definition, there's growth to those things and you have to be comfortable with that as well. And I kind of view him as, you know, I don't really, I can't dig down deep into his head, but he seems to be pretty comfortable with all of that stuff. He's obviously had a lot of practice at it and he's been doing it for a very long time. And temperamentally, he may be there just sort of naturally more than I am. Um, but that's where I'm trying to get to. He doesn't seem to mind the exposure because he's just like, whatever, if you like me, that's great. And, and hopefully you're in my audience. So, um, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm trying to be, I'm trying to get more there. I think it's a very Zen approach and in general, I'd like to be more Zen. I think I'll take the approach of trying to be more like Annie Duke, trying to be more like Seth Godin. <laughs> I like that. Because I feel like you're, you're moving a little farther there than I am. And as you approach him, I will approach, continue to approach you and we will all rise together. Uh, I just talked to Lori Kilmartin, the comedian who just, her, her memoir, comedic memoir of her father's death four years ago just came out and she's, she's having to go on tour Oh my god! and relive her father's death. Yeah. And so we talked about that and she's like, no, I'm not enjoying it at all. She was very frank about it. I like the book, but I don't like going and reading it and talking about it. I processed this already. Do you know about negative capability? It's something that you might it's a good little addenda to the book and to the idea of living in uncertainty. It's Keats's concept that an artist or a thinker has to live in a state of uncertainty too. I wish I were quoting it uh, properly, but that, that you have to, if you can't live in a state of uncertainty, you can't make great art. Oh yeah. That, I would imagine that that's true. I think that, I, I think that if you, I think that if you don't live in a state of uncertainty, it's hard to innovate, uh, which goes along with um, creating great art. Uh, you know, one of the things that I, I try to always say is like, if you're certain of something, then there's no reason to go research because you already know. Uh, so you're, you, I think you just generally end up being much more closed-minded. So if you're, I think, I think that you have to really embrace uncertainty in order to be innovative, and obviously in or, in order to create great art. Very important to have innovation. So I, I, am, I like that. Yeah, and it's a hard embrace to make. Hi, everyone. Pardon the interruption. This is Jamie uh, cutting in from the, the editing bay because there was no good transition from here to the last few minutes of our conversation, which will be coming up in a minute and in which we talk about the election and probability and blaming pollsters and the difference between pollsters and pundits and a few other things like that. But first, let me give you a couple of things. First, the uh, correct quote from romantic poet John Keats, who wrote, At once it struck me what quality went to form a man of achievement, especially in literature, and which Shakespeare possessed so enormously. I mean, Negative capability. That is when man is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. I wish you all luck in pursuing that. I'm still working on it. I also wanted to say that, while a few minutes back, I, I did say to Annie that as an ideal Having political conversations with people who we disagree with in a yes-and form would be great. I, I really don't believe that can be done these days, uh, and that I do believe that 
a really good recent article speaks to this kind of thing better than I can. And I'll, I'll have it in the, uh, in the notes for the show. It came from Harper's Bazaar, and it was by Jennifer Wright. And it was called Women Don't Owe Men a Debate About Feminism, with the subtitle, That Guy Sitting on Campus with His Change My Mind Sign, Let Him Read a Damn Book. But I think it applies to a whole lot of what passes for political debate these days. And it was a piece she wrote. Um, on March 20th, 2018, addressing the dude sitting on campus with the sign uh, that says, male privilege is a myth, change my mind. What Jennifer Wright has to say to that reflects really well my opinion on disingenuous invitations to argue politics these days. Here's a little, a little, a little fragment. She writes, I have rarely seen anyone's mind be changed by even the most well-intentioned arguments. Because let me assure you, men who sit down and issue these glib challenges in the name of debate do not actually want their minds changed. They want to argue with someone because they think that arguing is fun. I think we live in an era where there are still a lot of people who think that electing Donald Trump was a great joke on the liberal snowflakes of the world. And they love to sit down and argue with no intention of listening or learning. And so while I, in theory, support Annie's idea among people of goodwill, I'm just not at a place where I think the opposition is of goodwill. If you're sitting down with a conservative who may have voted for Trump but doesn't watch Fox News or InfoWars, that's one thing. But all the ones who want to argue are the ones who watch Fox News and InfoWars. So I don't think it's really the time or the place to be yes-anding in political conversation. And I just wanted to put that out there and say that I didn't want to argue with Annie about it. And I think her stance is a healthier one for the world, perhaps but it's not one that I can take right now. Okay, <laughs> with that, that cheery note said, I'm going to go back to the last few minutes of the conversation and end on a much lighter note. All right, where we pick up the conversation, Annie and I were talking about uh, actual poker hands as, as a way of understanding decision-making and how to make decisions regardless of outcome. And she was using the example of when she hosts uh, trainings or workshops, she will often, and I experienced this firsthand about a decade ago, she will take you through a hand and ask questions about how you should have played it. And then she will end the conversation without telling you the results of the hand. And I remember it being very, very frustrating and here's a little bit of an explanation about why she doesn't tell students the way the hand ends in those examples. If we go back to like why when we were talking poker, would I, you know, torture you without with not telling you the outcome? It's like, how is the outcome important? Like if I get my money in with aces and my opponent has two fives, so I'm... Uh, you know, slightly worse than 82%. Do 
to win that hand. Um, what does it matter how it turned out? I mean, it's, it's completely irrelevant. If the fives win or the aces win, like literally who cares? It, it, we're not playing chess. Like it, the, the outcome isn't a signal there. So if I'm going to tell you, okay, so here's the situation and I had aces and this guy moved in on me and he, and I had to decide whether to call him. Um, you don't need to know how the hand turned out to know if I'm making a good call there. I mean, obviously I'm, I'm creating a situation where we know that, I mean, we, we know because aces is literally the best hand that you could have in the deck, that there's no question. So we're removing, uh, a piece of, we're, we're removing the hidden information element because your hand is irrelevant there. We're head to head. There's a, there's a, just to say for people who play poker, there's, there are very, very specific circumstances where you might not play aces, but they're incredibly rare. So let's just throw those out and say we're in all the other times. Um, I've removed the hidden information element in the sense that while your hand is hidden from me, it, it doesn't matter because I know that my hand is the best hand. Um, so we know it was a good decision regardless of whether it, it turned out well or not. And so we can really take that logic, but this is where people get really uncomfortable with uncertainty. We can take that logic to any other hand. If I have Kings, it doesn't matter how that hand turned out for whether I should also call all of my chips in that spot. If I have Queens, it doesn't matter. If I have a six and a five, it doesn't matter how it turns out. We should be able to, just as we do with aces, figure out if it was a good call without knowing how it turned out. Now, the hand that you actually have, that can be informative. It's, it's not that the hand that you have is necessarily irrelevant because that can help inform my future decisions about the, way, the, the types of hands that you might be willing to move all your chips in with. So I'm going to store that away as a data point. It's not the be-all and end-all. Right. But, but it now is telling me something about your behavior that will help me going forward. So, uh, uh, that can be helpful information, but whether I won or lost the hand is don't tell me that I, I don't really care. Right. And as I'm trying to decide in that moment, whether it was a good decision, the hand that you actually have is also irrelevant because I've never seen that hand before. So we have to analyze my decision based on the information I have at that moment, not based on the reveal of the hand later, which is only helpful for me to stick that in your range for the future. But it doesn't mean I should have known because I may not have ever seen that data before. So maybe I shouldn't have known. In fact, maybe I couldn't have known. And we have to be okay with that. We have to say, we have to get out of this like I should have known. Like, how could I have known? I'd never seen you play that hand before. I only know what I know. I have to make the best decision based on that. So I, I think that ultimately it's kind of interesting because I think that what self-serving bias is, is it's a short-term fix toward self-compassion um, in the sense that if bad things aren't my fault, I suppose that's a way to be compassionate. But I think it's a very short-term fix. I don't, I don't think it gets you there in the long run. I think really accepting that you don't have control over the way things turn out, uh, in terms of the luck element, what you have control over is the quality of the decisions you make, uh, being information hungry, trying to refine your beliefs and, and, um, calibrate your beliefs as best as possible. And that that's a really hard problem and you're just damn well doing the best you can. And it's going to turn out that some bad outcomes 
yeah, you know what, there was information that you had that you didn't take into account. Okay, that's fine. Just learn from it. There are some bad outcomes. There's information that you'll find out after the fact that it would have been really nice to know. But that doesn't mean you should have known it. I think that ultimately that's the way to actually have really like self-compassion that has real depth. Yes. Pardon me. I, I, I'm <laughs> about 15 seconds ago, I thought I had a transition into uh, Nate Silver and the election and confirmation bias, and then I lost it. But let's just, uh, I assume that's one of the things that's resonated and caused a lot of interest. Uh, I don't know, I'm guessing people have had things to say about that. When you, and you've been, you've been talking about that both online a lot and uh, in the book, that people believing that 70% was 100% is a big factor in why the election went the way it was. I, 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 that maybe that's my interpretation, to the extent that a lot of people didn't vote. You in the book talk about it as we wouldn't be so critical of Nate Silver for getting the election wrong, if we understood that thirty percent or forty percent is thirty percent or forty percent. He could have won, and he did. Um, just like you describe a tournament hand. Well, an 18% hand is going to hit 18% of the time. Well, I think I said on Smirconish, like Nate Silver had Trump winning as often as it's Monday, Tuesday, and half a half of Wednesday. And I assume nobody's going around going, holy crap, it's the first part of the week. Like, whoa, was, that was really unexpected. And But in the book, I feel like you focus on we, that, that, and because, and you should, that it's, Nobody should have blamed Nate Silver. He did his job, and the numbers were accurate. Um, but what I think the lesson to come out of it is that a lot of disenfranchised, anti-Trump-leaning people, 50% of eligible voters voted. It was the lowest in 20-something years. People didn't like either candidate and stayed home. But had a lot of those people thought that... The chances of Trump winning were the chances that there was going to be a Monday or a Tuesday in the week or that, you know, that was actually 30 or 40 percent who didn't want him might have come out and voted. So, yeah, I think there's a lot to unpack there. I think, first of all, on the people calling Nate Silver wrong, I think that 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 speaks to the compassion piece, because one of the things that I think happens is that when you start to really incorporate uncertainty and say, look, I have to focus on what I can control, which is the quality of my decisions. Um, try to get as much information as I can, but understand that I can never know everything that's relevant. Uh, and that's, that's okay. I just, it's just an impossibility. Uh, that stops decision paralysis. I have to stop this sort of self-recrimination and I should have known and why didn't I know and that was so ridiculous and these kinds of things that we do to ourselves. That along with that also comes compassion for other people. Like Nate Silver, which is, well, he predicted, you know, he made a forecast. He had it at, you know, it depends on the day you were looking in the last week, but let's average it out to 65-35. So he was saying 65% of the time Hillary Clinton wins. Okay. You know, and then when it happens, you know, that the 35% hits, maybe we can not be so nasty to him because we can understand that he was making a forecast by definition that the that's uncertain on a given try. And what really matters much more for, for what he does 
is look across all of the elections that he's ever forecast um, and see how he does and see what his record looks like. And gosh, it looks pretty good, right? So maybe, you know, maybe I think compassion for other people. Now, I, I also agree with you. My argument was just that whatever side you're on, you might be more active if you believe what polls actually are is what they are. Yes, and I completely agree with you. So I think that there's a disconnect between what forecasters are doing like Nate Silver and what pundits are doing. Um, so pundits um, generally either are translating what the forecasters are saying into some sort of certainty um, so they see 65% and, you know, people don't want to hear, well, she's most of the time going to win. That doesn't make for great cable news, uh, you know, panel talk, mm -hmm. because now how can you have two people yelling at each other? <laughs> like if one's like, well, 65%, I think she's going to win. And the other guys, yeah, I agree with you. It's like, okay, the segment's over. Um, but they, t they tend to want to be able to say things in certain terms. I think that the public wants them to tell them things in certain terms. I think that people in general are pretty uncomfortable with uncertainty. Um, and so they want to know, tell me who's going to win. Don't tell me that somebody's going to win some of the time. I want to know the answer. Um, the same way that uh, your teacher in school doesn't want you to say, well, 65% of the time, I think the, it, the answer is A, and 35% <laughs> of the time, the answer is B. The, the teacher's <laughs> going to fail you for that. Okay. So yeah. 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 So it's, you know, that's a, that's a problem. And then what happens is that because of that translation now, uh, first of all, I think people don't go and vote because they think it's a foregone conclusion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when the, in this particular case, when the underdog, the person they, they said couldn't win, um, does win. First of all, there's a huge – nobody's prepared for it, which is really bad. So everybody's being reactive. Uh, nobody's emotionally prepared for what's going on. On both sides of the aisle, everybody was reacting to that. And then the, the other thing that I think is really bad is it just gives another reason to reject expertise. Because now what's happening is that instead of people saying, oh, the pundits didn't have it right, people are saying the pollsters didn't have it right and therefore or polls are stupid and they're dumb and statisticians don't know what they're talking about and forecasters are silly and um, we shouldn't pay any attention to them. Uh, that seems to be particularly when the polls say something you don't like, but, but you know. The quality of our decisions and luck. And we can't control luck, so we can control the quality of our decisions. Yeah, I have, the pep, I have a pet peeve of people who say, don't you think you make your own luck? No, you make your own decisions. Like you, you, you try to increase the probability that good outcomes will happen. But beyond that, I don't have any control. Yeah, I would say beyond you don't make your own luck. Uh, Warren Buffett's ovarian lottery. You're born in a certain position already. You, the luck is largely determined. So all you have are your decisions. Yeah, that's exactly right. So make your own decisions. Well, I will make my own decisions. And one of them is that I'm going to see you this summer. Yes. Okay. I've been trying to get you to come during the summer, not just the I know. ugly sweater party of which you are a champion. Oh, I'll send you a picture of our trophy is proudly displayed. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I thought maybe you'd have it on the bookshelf behind ah. you, but sadly <laughs> no, it is not there. No, this is just my little cave. It's got to be out downstairs where people can see it. Well, thanks, Annie. Well, thank you, Jamie.
You can find all things Annie Duke at AnnieDuke.com. That's A-N-N-I-E-D-U-K-E.com. You can buy Thinking in Bets in the places that books are sold. It's also a great audiobook narrated by Annie herself. Oh, and on her website, I highly recommend joining her newsletter. It's just a weekly hmm, collection of things to think about. Coming up on 15 minutes as we near our second anniversary uh, this coming month, we will have, among others, uh, Sonny Smith, who you may know as Sonny from the musical group Sunny and the Sunsets, and comedian Keith Lowell Jensen, and part two of my conversation with former Playboy editorial director Chris Napolitano. And then on May 25th, if you happen to be in the Greenfield, Massachusetts area, we are going to do our first ever live recording at Hawks and Reed Performing Arts Center with conversations with and performances by Mira Bartok, Beth Lissick, Ansel Appleton, and Sarah Fran Wisby, and musical guest Zach Troiano. You can find more information about that by Googling uh, Hawks and Reed Performing Arts Center in Greenfield, Mass., or by going to 15minutesjamieberger.com, where you can also find all of our episodes. That's 15minutesjamieberger.com. It's going to be so much fun. Thank you all for listening. Ed Patnode is the engineer. Christian Kandari wrote the music. This is 15 Minutes. I'm Jamie Berger.